Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Totally Tin Tin. I'm Ian Boothby. And I'm David Dedrick. And when we last left you, the year was 2015. Holy cow. Uh, it was actually September 16th, 2015. We are now talking to you on uh, in November, early November of 2022. And as far as I can see, nothing much has happened in the world, so let's just get back to it. Um, <laughs> we're doing this uh, bonus episode because uh, my friend David and I Yes. Have just returned from overseas, um, and uh, we visited uh, the Hergé Museum or the Musée Hergé. Uh, Musée Hergé, yeah. Musée Hergé. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I'm Ian Boothby. I'm David Dedrick. And if you have listened to any of the past episodes of the show, traditionally what we did on this show was we went through uh, every. Uh, volume of Tintin, uh, talked about the history of Tintin. David would talk about the history. I'd go, huh? Uh, and then we also, uh, covered, uh, some of the motion pictures. Um, and we went, we're done. And we wrapped it all up. And we, our last episode was called Tintin and the End. And yeah. that is traditionally where things end is at the end. Yes. But mm. here's the thing. Uh, David and I have in the meantime produced uh, a couple of books with our friend Nina Matsumoto. Uh, called uh, Sparks, about two cats who dress up as a dog and uh, save the world from uh, many things. Uh, And uh, they invited uh, us to Belgium uh, to do a little signing. And uh, we we did some signings. Dave is the colorist on the book. I'm the writer. Nina Matsumoto, uh, who's also known as the third dragon on our Sneaky Dragon podcast, is the illustrator. Uh, and uh, David and I went to Belgium. And when in Belgium, are you not going to go to the Hergé Museum? Yes. Of course you're going to. Kind of the reason So we figured, uh, well, we should talk about that. Mm-hmm. And now we shall. Let us begin. Sure. Do we? How detailed do we want to get? Do we want to talk about our drive there? Or do we just want sure, to talk sure. about... Listen... Um, I'm not sure how this show works. I can't remember. It was either. 2015, which is about <laughs> six lifetimes ago. <laughs> yes, I have shed many many skins since that time. Sure, like indeed. Yeah, uh, David is reptilian. Yes, uh, he is of the royal blood, and so he has shed skins. <laughs> That's right. Uh, oh my gosh, there was a there was a, a different member of the royal family in charge. Oh my god, so much has changed. Anyway, uh, yes, we took a we took a drive because we were in Ghent, uh, in uh, Belgium. It was a bit mixed up. I was in Brussels. David was you in were Brussels. In Ghent. I was in Ghent. The idea was that you would train it on down to Brussels, and we would continue mm-hmm. on from there together to uh, the museum. But because of construction, that kind of wrecked our plans. So yeah, we, everything was getting all messed up. Yeah, so we ended That's up do on these trips. Yeah, you could expect it. That's part of the fun of traveling is the adventure of of unexpected occurrences. Right, and some of them were good, <laughs> and some of them you can hear about on Sneaky Dragon. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So. Yeah, we ended up, uh, I rented a car and came and picked you up. Mm-hmm. And we drove down to Louvain-la-Neuve, which is the city that contains the Hergé Museum. Right. Whatever reason, Brussels itself uh, didn't want to host the Hergé Museum. I don't know if there was, expect- I don't know if there was an expectation of, um, of shared cost. That maybe when they're building the museum, they're kind of like, well, city of Brussels, maybe you can donate the land for it right. and you know we'll pay for the museum or we'll share the cost of everything i don't really know what their what their plan was or why brussels wouldn't want it because you'd think that something as well known i mean internationally well known right. as as um tintin you know it's kind of funny like you know i created facebook pages for all of our podcasts as we did them you know for completely beatles and you know they're all 
they're, they're kind of holding because, you know, I'm not really that good at social uh, interactions, social interactions or media or whatever. But what's interesting about the Tintin one is just how varied the people who like that page are. Mm. You know, like completely Beatles, you know, it's a, it's a pretty clear demographic of people that like the Beatles. It's a pretty clear demographic of people that like the Merckx Brothers and other uh, kind of, you know, specific, you know, topic specific po- right. podcasts that we did. But Tintin is like everywhere, you know, people from India, people from Sri Lanka, people from Australia, people from Japan, people from wherever you can think of. There's people who who are fans of Tintin. And so it's odd to me that a city like Brussels wouldn't want to be in on that, you know, interest and have sort of have this fabulous museum there. Maybe they didn't. Maybe it crashed on the rocks of of can it can it be more than just Hergé? Can we not also have Peyo, can we also have Frank Hanna, right. like other kind of great And they do have a artists. cartoon museum there currently. They do have a cartoon museum there, which kind of, unlike the Hergé Museum, kind of suffers from, um, well, just the fact that publish, the other pub, you know, publishing companies, you know, aren't interested in having their artists represented in these museums, which is odd to me, because it's kind of like my argument for using uh, older artists' music in commercials. And I know it sounds kind of crass, but it's not for reasons of crassness. But I just feel like if you don't expose people to artists, then they don't know about them. You know, so you can be very altruistic and say, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to sell out. Say Buddy Holly. Paul McCartney owns the publishing rights for Buddy Holly. And he's very particular about what that music is used for. But at the same time, if you don't put it out there, it just kind of disappears. Right. You know, like no one, when I grew up, no one knew who picked uh, Nick Drake was the the British uh, kind of folk singer, singer songwriter, and then in the late nineties, uh, a song by his was used for a Volkswagen ad, and people loved that ad and loved the song so much in that context that he kind of had a whole new career. Unfortunately, he is he has passed away, but his you know uh, there was all this interest, and you know they put out new CDs, and people were interested in in discovering who this person was and listen to his music. That never would have happened without it being used that way and so it's odd to me that you know publishers are you know allowing these uh great artists to sort of disappear in a way i mean i know they're still out there they publish Mm -hmm. the integrals and things like that but it's just not the same anymore for how things are spread like you know the the days of a you know publishing hundreds of thousands i have no idea how many people bought Spiru at its height or bought Tintin magazine at its height. But I can say this quite accurately. It was a lot more in the past than it would ever be now. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Though we were surprised to find out Spiru was still being published. Well, I guess, but we didn't see it. It is. It is, is, yeah. yeah. It's being published weekly mm -hmm. still. Wow, that's great. That is great, but I imagine that it's no—it's not quite at what it was like in the in the its glory days of the Mm -hmm. '60s, early '70s, or '50s, '60s, '70s. You know, those would have been quite the time to work for a magazine like that. Same with um, Tintin magazine. And I don't know. I just feel like it's it's uh, in you know artists' interest in 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 the legacy's interest to have you know exposure of all kinds of different things, not just the books you know, sacrosanct, help, held in some sort of sepulcher that they can never be changed. I mean, that's fine. But at the same time, you know, you have to have some sort of creative or at least some sort of way of having those those uh, artists and those the works that they did 
new one to 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 an audience. You know? Yeah, and it's uh, I mean, Bel- uh, sorry, Brussels does have some. Uh, again, again, you went to the Cartoon Museum, and you can say what your opinion of. Uh, was of the museum, but I know they also had uh, giant murals around sure. the city. So there's sure. a very much a celebration yeah. of comics, yeah, yeah. you know, around there. Yeah. Uh, I, I feel like if I was looking at the equivalent in like North America, I mean, something like Crazy Cat, yes, you know, which is George Harriman, mm-hmm. you know, uh, who you know is an amazing artist, but who's going to be able to read Crazy Cat? You know, I mean, if if, if you're interested in in reading Crazy Cats. They're in collections that are hardbound for yeah. collectors, yeah. just for collectors. Yes, for collectors I mean, and libraries. Yeah, only. whereas, yeah. you know, maybe if you were exposed to that kind of thing when you were younger, you'd go, oh, that's bizarre, and you'd grab yeah. onto it. Yeah. And it would also help you to process how to read comics mm-hmm. in, a, in a way that's, uh, you know, kind of difficult for a person who doesn't get that exposure yeah. uh, to comics uh, to do. Mm-hmm. This is just a complete side thing is like, because we've ca- ha- kind of had a resurgence of comics uh, for young people with scholastic books, much yeah. like the, not yeah. that I'm doing a plug for our book here, but I am. <laughs> uh, but things like Raina Tegelmeyer's book is very, mm-hmm. very popular. And, yeah. Uh, selling more than a million copies and what have you. But, uh, it, it, what it means is younger readers, uh, will learn how to read comics so that, you know, as, uh, as they mature, hopefully comics will mature and they'll be able to read, you know, uh, comics where it's very difficult sometimes for, for people who, you know, have just read maybe a comic strip or Peanuts or mm-hmm. whatever to read sure. something even like Tintin. Yeah. It's just it's just difficult to process uh, how, to, how to read something like that. Sure, it's difficult to process, but it's also, I mean, we can get, get into this a little bit, I guess, but it's also how your brain works. You know, there are people who don't like to read, like don't like to read at all. They right. find it very difficult to sit down and read. It's a, It's a labor for them to do that. And I think for some people, comics fall under that same thing. It's a labor for them to connect drawings and words. Right. And it's it's not what they're used to. And even if they read it a lot, it's they, it might not take. Of yeah. Course. The flip the flip is also true, though. There are some people to who comics are the easier way to read things. Yeah. And I remember that from being uh, younger. And mm-hmm. and there was people who would say, "Don't read those. Yeah. Those are going to ruin your ability to read because you know they're garbage." Yeah. And, so, and it's like, no, no, no. And then other people, which is I, I believe is true, is like anything you read is you reading. Yeah. And that'll lead you yeah. towards reading. Something when you're talking about. Crazy Cat, I was thinking about, uh, when I was a kid, there were paperback versions of Dick Tracy stories. Okay. So they would take like a, a, a run of a story, one of the kind of longer stories, say Prune Face or 88 Keys or whatever. Flat Top. Flat Top, I think, yeah. And Mumbles. Now, now they were edited for paperback. And they're also edited, they were uh, censored for kids as well. So okay. there was some, some of the violence was taken out. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, shooting people in uh, Dick mm-hmm, Tracy. Mm-hmm. There were still shooting people, but they kind of toned it down a little bit for for these books but at the same time you know as, how how else can you introduce kids to this character you know like I, I don't even i don't think it's in the paper anymore i don't think there's a dick tracy strip anymore mm. so uh yeah i just think uh yeah anyway it's we we could go along i don't know about this forever but uh let's talk about our trip Right. So you picked me up in the car. Yeah. We we went along. We uh, looked at you. Went hey horses quite a bit (laughs) at uh, horse trailers. Well, I'm always interested. uh, I I always find it fascinating because Uh, I'm going to interrupt you and say uh, Dick Tracy is still being published. Okay. And you can find it on (laughs) GoComics.com. And uh, and it's probably a good way to read it actually. Not for nothing. Yeah. 
But if you're at GoComics.com and you look up Mannequin on the Moon, I've got a uh, comic strip on there with my wife, Pia Guerra. Yeah, so there you go. So go to GoComics, check out Dick Tracy, check out Mannequin on the Moon. Back to Dave in the car looking at horses. Sure. Um, I guess I would... my. I guess I would say Dick Tracy's no longer published in newspapers that I I have access to. Fair enough. So, uh, yeah, so, yes. Well, the reason I'm interested in horses in, in Europe, I'm also interested in farms because I find find it fascinating the way land works in Europe. Because we live here in North America, which is very spread out and very a very very big place. You know, like Brussels or not Brussels, but Belgium. You could probably fit like I don't know forty Brussels into British Columbia. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like. It's, it's yeah. That's what it says on the sign when you're entering British yeah. Columbia. You could fit yeah. forty Brussels in here. <laughs> that's right. It's one of our bigger boat boasts. Oh, Belgians. Yeah, forty Belgians. We could fit forty Belgians into this. And so, you know, when you go to a place, and then and then you're like, wait, there's farmland here. Like, how many people live in this country? And they they have farmland. It's just amazing to me. I know we have farmland too, but it is this is curious. I just I just find I always fascinated by it, and I like horses, of course. Absolutely. <laughs> so so uh, we we drove uh, to the museum. Yeah. And you think like, oh, then we're just going to park at the museum and go inside? Well, no. Uh, we did a couple <laughs> of drive drive arounds. Yeah. There was a there was a an elementary school directly next to it. Yep. And I was like, is that it? No, it's not because it's full of children. <laughs> Though you would think the museum would be full of children as well. And it was adorable because it was Halloween time, so a lot of them were dressed up. Yeah. Which is surprising to me that Belgium has Halloween now. Didn't used to, but it does. There's a little kid dressed as a ghost playing with a kid dressed as a sheik. You're like, a sheik? It's like, <laughs> okay, well, it's, this is all new to you, so the costumes are old. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, we, we drove around trying to find places to park. We parked way too far away. Well, it wasn't, ba- wasn't too bad. It was bad. So then we got back in the car. I don't think we there's anywhere closer. Drove, no, no. We, we originally parked Way too far away, remember? Oh, oh, I see. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Considerably too far away. Yes, that was too far away. And then we finally just went, eh, this? Okay. And then, you know, walked up to the museum. You were looking for it, looking for it, looking for it. And I pointed my hand and went, is it the thing that says Hergé in gigantic <laughs> letters? Is it is that the building? And you went, yes. It, in my defense, I, I had a tree in my way. Right. So then we walk to find the entrance to the museum, yeah. walk past the entrance, walk <laughs> way around and get lost again. And then you go, uh, those doors look like they open. I'm like, really? Uh, I guess they do. Anyway, so things were not that clear to us, yeah. North Americaners, yeah. who expect to see clear <laughs> designations of this way in. But yeah. we, we did yeah. find our way into the door. We did. Yeah. And by going out to the front, we got to uh, take a good picture of the, the front of it. Yes. Because it, it is a beautiful building. It is like a beautifully designed building, I think. Uh, Would you like to include any of these pictures on our page? Yeah, I'll put some some of my clumsily taken pictures that uh, Here, can Here's enjoy one them. of the things, like, uh, whereas I'm kind of jokingly complaining about not knowing where the entrance is, <laughs> that that really did reflect a bit of the energy of the building, which wasn't the North American, come this way, folks, step yeah. right here. Look at this. You like comics, do you? Yeah. It was, hey. Hey, we're just we're here. Yeah, do you want to come inside? We're welcoming, but hey, relax. We're not uh, we're not going to push. Yeah, here and that's that was really the vibe to me of the museum. Mm-hmm. It was uh, it was relaxed. It was a nice open space when we went inside. Yeah, uh, every inch of the walls wasn't covered in something Hergé related. Uh, it it was definitely a space that was designed and had a feel to it that was mm-hmm. very relaxing when mm-hmm. you when you went inside. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, the architect 
of the building is a guy named Christian de Portsempat. Portsem Park, sorry. All right. And he has a long career as a as an architect. So, um, and I think that looking at some of his works, he reminds me a little bit, not a ton, but a little bit of um, Frank Gehry. Do you know him? He yes. He does a sort of bubbly looking building yep. stuff. Um, Potts. Uh, sorry to say his name, but um, the architect is not as he's not that extreme, but he does like some flow to his buildings sure. and a, you know a little bit of waviness to them. We see that in this building where he's. He's taken the like the front of it. He has done like a, a cartoon, like a cartoon panel, and with a large image of of Tintin on both front and back of the building inside this panel that's slightly angled to kind of give a dynamic feel to the building. Mm-hmm. When you're inside it, you don't really feel that angle at all. Like, there's no sense that the building has is tilted. But outside of it, yeah, you, know, you look at it, and you it's quite. It seems quite uh, obvious. A very extreme. But it's very welcoming too. Like it's a, there's a sense of like oh you know that big giant wide walkway up to the front of it, and then the doors that open automatically. When we as we as we approached them, we were both had the same feeling of like this isn't the doors because no. these doors that would let you in would have handles on them. These doors do not have handles, but they just opened automatically in a very mellow way, like not yeah. in a big big way. It just felt kind of like oh here you a are, a very European way. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. And then we went in, and our original plan. We had contacted the museum, or you had contacted the museum. Yep. But unfortunately, they did not get back to us um, before we arrived. So I was hoping we could talk to someone and just sort of have like a kind of a, a bit of a talk about the history of the museum and, and just some of the statistics about how many people visit there yeah, and things like that. They did apologize afterwards. Yeah. And yeah. so I just was kind of curious about those sort of things. I know that um, the museum was, I guess, the golden shovel was put into the ground I don't think it was a golden shovel. I don't know, but they you know they're they, terrible to dig with a gold shovel. <coughs> Very terrible. Um, they uh, when they broke ground in two thousand seven for the museum. It was finished in two thousand nine, and it opened to and it had a bit of um, I think I think people who have dealt with studios Hergé would all agree that they're a little bit difficult to deal with. Um, okay, um, Hergé's widow Fanny. I think she remarried a guy named Nick Rodham, some kind of name like that. I'm sorry if I'm getting it wrong. But they kind of run Studio Hergé with an iron hand squeezing the blood out of the stone of, of, of Tintin and Hergé. Like just trying to like, you know, get that money out of it. But what's interesting about the museum is that it doesn't feel like a commercial enterprise, which is great for us. But I think the museum kind of had some financial difficulties um, early on, and and I think it's now kind of a, a shared cost between Belgium, like Belgium, the country has contributed to the museum's okay uh, finances. Although it is a privately run an own museum still, which is interesting. But before we get too too much further about it, I just want to say that like when you dream about going somewhere for a really long time, uh-huh. you know, from when I first heard about it, I wanted to visit the museum. It's just been like on my my list of things to do in my life. And it's very rare when that, when you do that, that it's not going to be a disappointment. When you finally get to that whatever, and you get there and you're just kind of like, well, I mean, it was great, but I built it up so much in my mind that right. it will never live up to that. And what's great about the Hergé Museum is that it totally exceeded what I thought <laughs> it would be like. You know, like, you know, I had my ideas of, of it, but no, it's, it's, it's a 
it's built for fans, you know. Like, I think if you went there with someone who was completely not into Tintin, they wouldn't understand the joy you're you're taking taking from it because it is so detailed about the creative aspect of of Hergé. You know, there are biographical elements, but they're really wrapped up in the art. I mean, it really recognizes the fact that he was his art. You know, that's what he was. Mm-hmm. He was, he was cre- a creative person and his creative, you know, his creativity came out in this way. And that's who he was. And so you get this biography, but it's always coached in the development of, you know, his commercial art when he was younger, the development of, you know, co- you know, his uh, cartooning style and all those sort of things you just see step by step as he gets starts and gets better and you know and he was just he was really lucky though to have the 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 opportunity to like fill up insert of a of a newspaper you know like that's pretty rare for a 20 year old to get to get just have someone hand over the reins of of a of a of this and to say well you know here you go every week just you have to do 12 pages of something so i'm trying to think of someone who would be a parallel in North America, like anyone else, uh, yeah. who you could have a museum like this about. The closest thing I could think is Charles Schultz. And even so, that wouldn't really be focusing on his artwork as much as the impact of Peanuts. Yeah. And then you get a lot of things about the animated series mm-hmm. and the merchandise mm-hmm. and yeah. what have you. Yeah. And, and it's not like there was no shortage of merchandise. And, you know, uh, there was a little bit of the animated, you know, version of uh, Tintin that was there. But so much of the focus was on the drawings themselves and mm-hmm. the art. Mm-hmm. And again, I cannot think of a parallel to here. So as someone who does have a love of cartooning, um, you know, it, it, it was really, really interesting. It was, it was interesting to see this whole building dedicated to cartooning. Yes. And you come out of it just going, huh, man, you want to draw, yeah. huh? Like, I mean, <laughs> yeah. it, it could go one of two ways. One, yeah. you could just go... Done. I can never do this. Forget it. It's impossible. Or two, you could be inspired yeah. to pick up a pen and yeah. uh, and and do what you want. Uh, I'm gonna say the one of the things that I liked, and we will kind of break down just floor by floor what it was. Yeah. But like one thing that I loved was just seeing you looking at the the drawings mm. and just being so fascinated with like the whiteout and yeah. and just seeing what was removed from drawings like afterwards just the yeah. details it's it's yeah it's, it's something not just you could the not get yeah. out of a book <laughs> yeah exactly you couldn't you don't get that yeah. feel like looking at the drawings cuz you can look at them sort of sideways at an angle mm. and you can see how thick yeah. uh the ink is yeah. and the and the drawings and, and and many times there would be a literal cut and paste yeah. of a of a previous page that was then put onto this page and then expanded into a larger page yeah and just that process was fascinating. Yeah, that was fascinating. And yeah, the reason I love looking at the the gouache, the white gouache, is that you're seeing the creative process right there. Yeah. Like, you know, you know that he inked that page and then he sat back and looked at it and then he got out his brush and his white gouache and he went through and he removed lines. Yeah. You know, which, speaking as a cartoonist to a degree, um, but it's very hard to do that. The temptation is always to do more right. when you draw because that's more impressive. People are going to go like, wow, you spent four days cross-hatching that? Amazing, you know. But what's more impressive is is to not do that, to, to let the drawing just sort of be and to do the most the most minimal amount of... of Take out as much as possible. Yeah. Uh, to, yeah, all that remains is what's essential. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's like art can do two, like two things. Like, well, I mean, art can do many things, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, art can do two things. That's, that's what I say. <laughs> Only and two. that's it, just two things. <laughs> anyway, 
Um, yeah, I'm a, what you call a rube. <laughs> You're a minimalist. I'm a minimalist. Of, yeah, yeah. I've stripped it down to these two things. Yes, that's right. But what, 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 art, what art can do is like sometimes when you go to a museum, like you, if you go to the Louvre yeah. and you, you look at all these paintings and just go, well, that's impossible. No <laughs> human could do this. Yeah. I can't picture a person painting these things. These things must have always existed. They're just like nature. They just, they emerge perfect and they could have not, there, no choices were made yeah. in the making of this. This was just what it had to be and what else could it be? Yeah. Uh, and so it's, it's interesting to see art that you go, oh, choices were made. Mm -hmm. A person did this. Yeah. They picked this, they picked this, they chose this, they did this, they took this away. Yeah. And then this was the result and it probably wasn't perfect to them. And probably no, it was as I'm good sure. as it had to be for the deadline that was to be made. Exactly. That's... And, and he never expected it mm -hmm. to be in a freaking museum. Like, <laughs> if you knew that this would be hanging on a wall yeah. with your name on the outside of the building, yeah. maybe you couldn't even do it. But, no, you know, it's this possible. was done to meet a deadline. Yeah. It's possible, yeah, that would be kind of, I think for most people, that would be a little intimidating. Yeah. But you're right. I mean, yeah, the, the, I mean, the height of, of Hergé's creativity and, you know, and, and workflow was, you know, through his time working for Le Petit Vantiam and then, you know, working for Le Soir, the, the, the Belgian newspaper, and then the early days of Tintin magazine. But as he got more famous and as his workload didn't probably didn't go down, but it changed, he started to relax you know, it's easier to not, and that's a lot of hard work. Right. Like you look at all the stuff he produced up into, and then kind of reproduced it again. We were sure, talking sure. about that where it was enough to fill a museum. Yeah, like the three floors, like the Black Island, for instance. Uh, Lille Noir, the the was drawn three times at that book. Wow. You know, it was drawn originally for Le Petit Vantiem, then it was redrawn for the albums, and then at the insistence of the British publisher, it was further redrawn to be more accurate to what Britain actually looks like. Wow. So, yeah, a lot of extra work there. Now, a lot of that was taken on by assistants, obviously. But Hergé, uh, you, know, uh, you know, through most of his career, always drew the characters, you know, because that's, that's the magic in, in those. I mean, I, I like the car drawings and things for sure, but the magic in Tintin... Yeah. Is in his characters, is yeah, in his characterization. He has to draw the actors. Mm -hmm. He has to direct the mm -hmm. actors. He's the only one. How yeah. to do that? Yeah, yeah. Make, who makes them the best? That his his hands his hands produce the the most nuanced ca characterizations. You know, and yeah, it's. Um, I was thinking actually. I was thinking today. Um, I was like, yeah, it's too bad we didn't take the train there because that's that's kind of more like Tintin. And I was thinking, like, is it? Isn't Tintin like really more about cars? They're always driving in those. Like yeah. how how many train sequences are there in? You know, there's not a ton. There's like the, I think in the uh, Blue Lotus we have the train crash. Okay. He takes a train to Russia and some land of the Soviets. So I'm sure there's a few, but it doesn't feel like it's as prominent as cars are in in the stories where there's all those great driving sequences, you know, and. Yeah, a lot of fun with cars. So, you know, him, him standing on the running board in Tintin in America, shooting his gun at the gangsters, just things like that, you know, like. Sure. Um, so then I was thinking it's better that we drove there. Yeah. Although it's, I think the museum is designed more for people to walk over, <laughs> walk from the train station, but I think that's why parking was kind of odd. Good. 
Could be, yeah. Yeah. And we, you know, as a... There's bus parking right nearby, but that's, there for, is, that's, that's for tours, yeah. Yeah. So um, we uh, we bought our uh, tickets. Uh, they were very nice about that. And uh, they like to take our money. That worked out <laughs> all right. Our credit cards went through. What a relief. Um, and it's three floors. And you start with the third floor and you work your way down. Yeah. So we go up, uh, take the elevator. Yeah. Uh, to the third floor. Walk in. And the first thing that you're hearing is... Uh, well, song. before you do that, though... Okay. Let me just say... Please. Before say. you do that, you step off the elevator. Yeah. And you have this weird sense of like it's such a it's a such an interesting building because it's there's no like really straight surfaces inside true it's all kind of angles and curves and they're and um no it was designed by the architect designed it but the interiors were all uh designed by the cartoonist yost sport do you know him no he had a lot of stuff in he had stuff in raw magazine and he had stuff uh, i think he did stuff in for drawn and quarterly when they were doing producing their like um, anthology, sure. John and Quarterly anthology. The actual magazine, yeah. John and Quarterly. Yeah, uh, he is. Um, I think he might be from the Netherlands, but he is a definite like um, student of Hergé. He draws in that clean line style and draws a very similar style to Hergé. So I think his aesthetic is that, and so he kind of brought that to his to his interiors for the museum. And so there's, it's all very subtle on the. On the big surfaces, you know, there'll be like kind of uh, elements of landscape of Hergé's kind of beautiful wave drawings and stuff like that, which everyone who reads Hergé loves his waves. So, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so they're just uh, kind of blown up really big, yeah, but beautifully, beautifully done. And, uh, and as you saw the colors inside. And so when you come out of the elevator, you're at the top of this amazing space looking down into this place and it, and it kind of sets your your mind you know you're kind of like oh you're you're into this journey you know right. now you're ready for it because you've come up to the top and you looked looked throughout this thing you looked outside from both sides you can see through the entire building both ways yes which is also very nice because there's a forest on one side and then the university on the other so you can look at uh, the dorms yeah it's, it was very nice so anyway yeah you go into the first room and then and and you're and yeah the and because you're up high it's almost this feeling of like you're in the night sky, mm-hmm. you know, uh, very black and white and, uh, and and images of art. Yeah. And uh, I, I just wanted to like get the name right. Charles Trenet's Boom is playing. Yes. And uh, you're going to have that song in your head for a <laughs> long time. It's just a very catchy, bouncy song uh, that uh, we may we may include. You know, we'll see. Uh, <laughs> I can't not? make promises. I can't make promises. Uh, but we walk don't, in. Don't do it. And the 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 we we actually had the room to ourselves for for a while there. Yeah. Before it was interesting because then children came in with their parents. Mm. And you're like, oh, how's this going to go over? And they just loved it, and you could tell the kids were loving it on a different level. Yeah. Which is so yeah. so fun. Uh, but yeah, it was uh, you were seeing the original art uh, of Hergé there, and I was just really enjoying as much as I was enjoying seeing the art. I was enjoying watching you enjoy the art. <laughs> and I could tell that you felt like, oh, this is right. Things are going to be okay. Yeah. Because you walk in and it's, it's, it's very much a comforting, welcoming environment and a, a great place to start your journey. Yeah. The first room is interesting because it's a mix of, of old and old, old and new. Like, I mean, obviously this is, I'm speaking in, uh, relative terms, like old, Tintin to new newer Tintins, right? Things or or older 
you know, like younger Hergé to older Hergé. And so you get things like, um, you get some drawings of Quick and Flupka. You get some, you get that little, uh, fun little um, cartoon of, uh, I can't remember the guy's name now, but he's like a manger bellum. Okay. Expresses himself freely. You know, the one where he gets mad about the Belgium talking about uh, uh, maintaining its neutrality. Okay. In yeah. the face of, of Hitler's aggression. Yeah. And then he goes and writes, you know, Monsieur Hitler is, is a nut on the yeah. wall. Uh, I'm just, of course, I'm doing a translation of what he writes, but, um, and it's, yeah, it's just the little things like that, that, you know, you get to see, um, uh, some drawings from the Blue Lotus. You get to see some drawings from, from, um, I guess Red Rackham's treasure. You know, the, that fab, you get that fabulous co- cover of the shark submarine of, of Calculus's yeah. submarine. And we were looking at that, and of course, we're you're looking at it, and you're going, "Oh, this has entirely been drawn." Of course, part of this is going to be obscured when they put the when they put the writing yeah. on the, the cover. So there's things in there that you've never seen before. That's right. You're actually seeing up. new. That was a nice thing for me too. It's yeah. like seeing you see new art. <laughs> you know that you would uh, that you were so familiar with certain parts of it, and now here's just a little bit uh, a little bit extra. Yeah, and then there's a page from Tintin on on the Moon and. Uh, and you see, the, this is one of the first examples of where they've cut out the figures of of the captain and Tintin and pasted it onto a page and then drawn again. And I don't know if they didn't like what they had done originally and they had it all inked and they decided to change it and so they cut out what they liked and added you know, different details. But this is details. a very common thing when a lot of the art was elements or panels yeah. cut out, pasted <laughs> onto another page. And then drawn around yeah. as if it was like always there. Well, the problem was is that all all of the original art that had been created up until the mid-40s was the wrong format for the albums. Right. And so they had to take, particularly the stuff for Le Soir, which was, if you remember, we were looking at it, it's so tiny. It's just mm-hmm. mere centimeters <laughs> wide and, and tall, this tiny little strip on a huge newspaper page, like this dense with type. And then the very bottom is this little tiny bar of, of Tintin at the v- bottom of the front page. But it's great that he got the front page. And that's pretty fantastic. But all those pages were, all those drawings were way too small for the, for the album art. And so they had to be expanded to fit the new panels. And so it's, it's, it's so, I don't know, there's something so like, uh, lackadaisical about the fact that they're just cutting up all this beautiful drawings. Right. And then pasting them down onto another piece of because why would paper. the original art matter? Yeah, it's the but, but yeah, you're right. I mean, that's that's the obvious attitude, but it just it feels so weird to us now where that the art really does matter. And to and to me, the other part of that is, of course, you know, so they would cut out elements of a page, put it on the other page, expand yeah. that page. Yeah, and you're like, what happened to the original page? Yeah, yeah. Did you keep that? Was that just tossed out because just now it's away, useless? Yeah. Why? Why would you? Are yeah. you? Uh, you know, are you Chuck Jones washing, you know, cells, animation cells, because uh, they're more valuable yeah. than the actual an- animation cells. Yeah. And uh, yeah. we got to clean them and uh, reuse them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a heck of a thing. It's a yes. It's I don't want to call it short sighted thinking, but it, it, there is. a No, it was practical for the time. It's very practical for the time. Exactly. I mean, you know, they they were, you know, he RJ is still still making Tintin. He's still right doing drawing Tintin. He's doing. Probably doing the uh, the was it the seven crystal balls? Is that what it's called? Jeez, boy, you think I remember these things now? But um, he was doing that at the time, 
well, people like uh, Edgar P. Jacobs, who would go on to create Blake and Mortimer, was repurposing the artwork from the earlier pages into into the album style art. And so, the yeah. Seven Crystal Balls. Seven yeah. Crystal Balls, yeah. We did that episode June 17th, 2015. <laughs> no wonder I can't remember. No. Oh, that makes sense. What's fun about... Um, um, yeah, so you, you get this sense of like the practicality of commercial art even though you to sure. me this is more this is not commercial art this is like fine art tintin you know it's this is like some of the most beautiful drawings ever done the cover to uh the Cassiopeia emeralds the cover to explorers on the moon the covers to uh they call the tintin on the moon earlier that's wrong explorers on the moon i was thinking of the video game <laughs> our theme song which is yeah where we got our theme song from that's right uh yeah, and that then, video game was not there in the in the museum. No, they didn't have a video game there. I, I think because this is just celebrating what he has created for sure. the most part. There is there was some there was some like commercial like some some uh, merchandise there as well, but not it's not very prominent. No, I imagine they could really fill like a room full of that stuff if they wanted to. I mean, there is a gift shop that is full of that stuff, but but I'm talking about like stuff that would be because there was that one we were looking at some vintage games. They had those. Like vintage toys there sure, as well, sure. which are pretty cool to look at. So there was a bit of that, but uh, it's more, like I say, it's really more for the... That's a very deep cut. The uh, the video game of Tintin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, like I love video games and I love uh, comics and uh, I had no idea that existed. Until the one, hey, what's this theme song from? It's from this. Ah, all right. Fair enough. Yeah. And what's interesting as well is like, so that first room is almost like, here's a warm up. There are some like displays. There are some like yep. glass cases and they have some physical, you know, they have uh, photo things, albums. And, and there's things about the Boy Scouts there. Yeah. Yeah. But when you go into the second room, that's where they have like his commercial art. Yes. Which is interesting. Like it's not introduced right away. It's kind of like, well, here's some tinted stuff. Kind of get used to get kind of get used to what we're going to do. Now we're going to go for the you know real deep dive here. We're going to look right. at some of his. It's a very welcoming art. first room. Uh, the the music is very comforting. Yeah, it uh, you get to see some very interesting things, and it's 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 what you should do with the with your first room, which is go. We know what we're doing. Yeah, relax. Yeah, and here we go. Yeah. And by the way, here's the rough page for uh, the uh, Castafora Emeralds. Yeah. Yeah, suck on that. What buddy. do you think of that? Think maybe, <laughs> it's too bad we don't have the actual cover, or do we? Yes, you'll see. Yeah, that. Well, maybe you'll see it later. Maybe you won't. I mean, who knows? You should probably go to the next room. There's an amazing amount of art there, and one thing I was kind of like dreading before we went there was I was reading that there is a big Hergé exhibit in Spain right now at a museum in Spain has a big Erge, has a big Tintin exhibit. Okay, and so I was thinking, oh, are there going to be pages missing from the the museum? Like there going to be empty walls, kind of like. Stuff on loan or whatever, and you don't get to see it. No, it was be, absolutely packed with stuff. There's no. It would no be funny sign. if the Spanish one was just all the pages that have the things cut out of them, <laughs> so they've all got just giant holes in them, and like, huh, I wonder where these things are. It's like, yeah, it's back of the other one. That's right. Absent Tintin. But yeah, he did have his commercial art in the, uh, and I didn't know he did all mm. that commercial art. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, I, I love uh, advertising art. Like that's something mm-hmm. I really enjoy seeing. Yeah, uh, me too. It's such a fun, especially of that form. vintage. I yes. think it's really inventive. I love that. There's that one of the looking at the the boat coming towards you. It's like a holiday ad. Obviously, went on luxury liners in those sure. days, and it's just like this beautiful drawing of this boat. It's so striking, and I mean, it's advertising art. But people have that on their walls now. You know, it was mm-hmm. a pop, popular poster when I was when I was growing up for people to buy and frame and put on their wall. 
So, you know, it's just, and Hergé was actually quite skilled as a, as a commercial artist as well. Like to see some of his stuff, that, that image of the tent in the middle of the woods was fabulous. Mm. I thought that would be, that would be a wonderful, uh, wonderful picture to, do you know that one? I no, a, no, not off the top of my head. Let me just show you. Cause Please do. Oh yeah, that's beautiful. I did love that one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a wonderful, uh, wonderfully evocative piece. I have some good pictures and then I have some pictures of the floor. So I, was, <laughs> I was walking around with a phone open and I, I, I have a lot of pictures of you looking at pictures. <laughs> and then there was that dragon. That yes. It's a toy shop. It looks so much like, uh, you know, like a relative of the Sinky Dragon yeah. logo for, uh, for other podcasts. Yeah. I love that one. That one I'd like as a shirt or a poster. I'm, I'm very crass. <laughs> I just would like, uh, posters of, uh, all, all of this art. But yeah, it was, it was, that was very fun. That was a fun room. It was also fun to see some pages from like Josette and Jocko mm-hmm. there as well, or in Quick, Quick and Flupka. Yeah, this is all stuff you know that I'm like, you know, <laughs> that I've heard you refer to on the show. Yeah. But, you know, as the uh, novice, mm-hmm. as, you know, we started off the show with me not having read these yeah. books for the most part, maybe yeah. read two or three Tintin books. So, yeah, I definitely didn't know any of these characters. Yeah. No. We didn't go into them too much because it was about Tintin, the show, but... Um, it was, a, it was still fun to see the artwork there because I do, I do really like, uh, the, the Joe's, Joe Zet and Jocko style is, is probably, there's like a period of Tintin that's my f- personal favorite. Which is what? Which is, uh, kind of post forties, I guess. Like just around that time. I just love the artwork of, of that time. I think because, um, the pages for Le Petit Vantiam were really big. Like he drew in really big pages. And so when they were shrunk down for, like when those pages have been shrunk down for for the the albums, the line gets really thin. It's very spidery, and I don't like it quite as much as I like the thicker lines that you see in the later ones, where the pages are smaller. So when they're reduced for for um, for printing, it doesn't. The lines aren't aren't uh, all. I don't know. It's just talking about the art. I, you know, the for stories sure, are still great yeah. in all those ones, but in terms of the art, that's like my my ultimate time. And Josette and Jocko kind of comes from that time period too. A lot of it, so. So, so that's good. your favorite time for the uh, for the art of Tintin. Is there <laughs> a time that you prefer for the storytelling of Tintin, or is it the same time? Um, that's a good question. Actually, I would I would say that yeah, probably. I mean, I don't know. I kind of there's particular stories I like, but I think they kind of come spread across the different time periods. You know, sure. So I love the Black Island. And that's yeah. an early one. Yeah, and I love. The Calculus Affair, and that's a that's kind of sure. a mid period one, and then I love uh, I absolutely adore the ca- uh, the Castafiore Emeralds, and that's definitely like a late a late period one. Probably the last one I would uh, we talked about it on the show a little bit, but I would say it's probably the last book that he was really like totally um, totally into doing, unless that comes or does Tintin and Tibet come after that one? In that period, anyway, those were kind of like the final his final like hurrah. And then he kind of like just got her done for the the final two Picaros in Flight 714. One thing I particularly liked as well, I'm just like shooting through my mind of like some of my favorite memories, was I I always enjoyed uh, when you saw a picture of Tintin on a horse (laughs) and you would take a picture of it for your wife. Yes. The two of you do a podcast called Horse Mysteries on our our network and it was like, oh, there's a horse. Yeah. And uh, he he drew a good horse. I don't know if he drew the horses. Maybe someone else drew drew the horses. Well, he definitely drew them for uh, Tintin in America. So, yeah. And the horses had good expressions and uh, yeah, very lively. 
it's yeah, it's always hard to know uh, as as it moves along what what was shared and what was what was. Uh, but I think that he enjoyed drawing living things. I think it was more mechanical stuff that he was less interested sure. in drawing. As time went on, he kind of passed that off to other people to to fill in the backgrounds and, and do that stuff. Yeah, there's less. Uh, I mean, again, he is the director, mm-hmm. uh, and so he wants to present the emotion and the action and what have you. Yeah. And, uh, you yeah. know, there is action, obviously, in a car chase or a train crash. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, yeah, it's uh, much more necessary to be doing the uh, reactions of people uh, than it is to do the you know, the planes, and yeah. trains, and automobiles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's other people who enjoy doing that more. So why not... Well, that, pass that along to them. that's exactly true. I mean, there's um, there's another French uh, or Belgium cartoonist, a guy named Gidehem, and he um, started off like doing working with Franquin and drawing all the cars and things in the Superior and Fantasio stories, and that was just his job. And then he went from that to doing a character called Starter, and who was like a race car driver or like a truck a driver anyway. And then that morphed because the character everyone loved with this little girl character in the stories. So that morphed into a series called Sophie, which he did for a long time. But, you know, part of the, his interest still is cars. So the cars are always prominently done in his, in his stories because he loves to draw cars. Kind of like Jacques Martin, who was Hergé's assistant and I think chief car drawer. And he loved to draw cars. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how beholden you are to the linear uh travels through the museum but uh so i'm going to jump ahead for just a second sure, sure. jump back yeah um because but again it was a delight watching you uh look at look at the art and and just see how much it meant to you that was that was a real treat uh but as we got near the end uh you said to me you know the one thing <laughs> that uh you know is uh, that it bothers me and just a little bit yeah uh, you know, hedging your bets. Not hedging, but you were like, you know, it's, this is all great, but yeah. Yeah. if there's one thing, uh, I, I feel like the uh, assistants got short shrift here. Yeah. You know, and it was like, well, yeah, I guess so. As we walk into the final room. Yeah. And it's assistants on parade. <laughs> it was all that. Yes, First of all, good. Uh, Hergé's desk was there. Oh, yes. That was and amazing. that was just gasp worthy. Yes. To see, to see the desk. Yeah. And then behind it were pictures of all the assistants. <laughs> and it was like, well, this is perfect now. Yeah. This was like the one thing that was missing. And yeah. here it is. Yeah. And then, by the way, here's something you've always wanted to see, which is the desk. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it just makes it feel so well, Actually, real. I didn't even think about that until... You didn't think about the desk? No. Oh, I always think about the drawing tables. Me too. I mean, Because I, I know I'm when we're talking about, about like Charles Schultz and the idea yeah. of like going to, you know, Peanuts Museum. Museum and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Schultz Museum. You want to see his drawing table. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You want to see, like, if you, if you you want to see Jack Kirby's drawing yeah. table. You want to see where the thing was made. Well, what's well, what's great about the Schultz Museum is it's a reproduction of his office with right. a drawing table, and so you get to, and it's a reproduction. There, the whole thing exists somewhere else in in like as it actually is. Sure, his, his office is still there on his property, but yeah, the museum has. A rep- reproduction of his office and his table where he drew it, which I knew about, so that would be expected. But I wasn't thinking they would do that with Hergé, because it's, I mean... But in this case, it was the actual table, It was right? the actual drawing table, yeah. yeah. It's amazing. And I don't know how old, like, when he started using it. Maybe it was from the very beginning, maybe it was partway through, who knows. But, I mean, a lot of pages of, of Tintin were created at a, in a very simple place, you know. Like Hergé said, you can take your Wacom tablets and 
Yeah, it was weird that he had access to the Wacom tablets uh, decades, <laughs> decades before, before anyone else. He's such a technologically forward thinker. Mm-hmm. No, I just mean it was just amazing the amount of stuff that was created there and, 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 and in such a simple setting. It's not a fancy table. It's not an architectural table. It doesn't have a bunch of fancy rulers on it or anything. He just sat down with a piece of paper and made amazing, did amazing stories and drew amazing art. Yeah. And so it's incredible. And that, that's something else that's very nice about the museum. Well, let's, I mean, the museum, I think it starts off fairly thematically and then it just kind of gets a little bit kind of whoop-de-doo. Right. You know, like there's a, there's one room that's like all the kind of major characters. And so it talks about the major characters and stuff like that. And really, it's just an excuse to look at more art. Sure. You know, like we all know calculus. We all know Haddock. We understand their characters. That's what we're there for, you know. But they do have little, you know, Professor Calculus or, you know, uh, whatever he is in uh, French is blah, blah, blah. You know, and you're like reading this and you're like, oh, yeah, he is. That's true. (laughs) But you know that, right? Like, Right. They had and they had they broke everything down into English, French and Flemish. That's right. As well, so you also got to see things like what's uh, what's Snowy's name in uh, in in all of these. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it yeah. is interesting, you know, just seeing the the differences. There was uh, just a, a beautiful display with all these little uh, pictures done in, in almost like a, a giant globe. Uh, that was a, a, all these images of the different characters. Yeah, from Tintin yeah. as well. Like, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And 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 you walk through this uh, interesting like stairwell around it mm-hmm. and. Yeah, it's very stylistic. It's very immersive. It's not, that, yeah. yeah, it's yeah. it's almost like I don't want to say like it's it's the it's the more North American type thing, but it felt like more of like this is spectacle. Yeah, yeah. And whereas uh, a lot of the other things were more, oh, here's the art. Yeah, come, come look at some art. We <laughs> yeah. trust that you know. You know, you're an adult, right? Can come here, and this is yeah. more like listen. Yeah. Ah, da, 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 so there's a little bit of that. There's, there's a little bit of that because okay. you know kids do come. Yeah, you know, and, then, and for a child, this would be very, uh, you know, very impressive and spectacular. Yeah. And I'm sure the the kids that followed us in, you know, enjoyed that. Bit. Sure, sure. And one nice thing we should mention is that when you you do go from room to room, but there's there's like a, a walkway or a, a gang, a sort of a you know like an elevated walkway from from one area to the next. So you you leave this sort of darkened area with the artwork and then walk out into the sunlight. Yeah. Because it's, you know, all glass in this place. And then you walk along into the next darkened area and you look at the art in there and, and ooh and awe. And you do get exposure to both other elements of the museum that are like stylistic elements. But then you also, as you said, have giant windows that look out into the world. Yeah. And yeah. where the windows are aimed is interesting too. Because, yeah, it does like look out into the woods or it looks at there's an elementary school that's next door. Yeah. And yeah. you see children playing that are out there. Yeah. And it's just like this all works together very, it's, very well. It's weirdly situated. And it it is. And I mean, it's kind of curious because I guess, well, and as I, I say, it's nice to see ghosts and sheiks finally getting along. T- talking to. Uh, yeah, finally, because they're, you know, it doesn't <laughs> Um I was, we, I was talking to someone about going to the museum in, when we were in uh, Ghent, and they were saying that Louvain La Neuve, which is called La Neuve, the new Louvain, is because there is another Louvain, although it's it's the Flemish is L E U W E N. That's that's the name. I don't know how to pronounce it in Flemish. Sorry, but apparently the Flemish people and the French people got into a fight, and so the French people left, and they they built their own Louvain. Okay. Like about, I don't know how far, like a hundred miles to the to the west, they built this new place, yeah. Louvain-la-Neuve. 
and and so they and so they built because Lu Luwen or however you say it is a university town had a university there. Yeah. So they took they rebuilt they built a new university in Louvain la Neuve. It's a French speaking university there, and and this is in the uh, Wallonia part of of Bel of Belgium, and which is a French speaking part, and then they. And I guess that's why, and I guess that's why the muse, the uh, Hergé Museum worked there is because it was still kind of being built. The town was being built, so they had public spaces. They had spaces, you know, for things to 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 be built near the near the university. And uh, so yeah, so unfortunately for Brussels, which you know it had just been a great feather in their cap to have there, but I guess it's in someone else's cap, mm -hmm. which is fine. But yeah, it's uh, it was sort of interesting to to learn that the city, because it, it's a planned city. It's not, it's not like Brussels or, or Ghent, which are these sort of organic cities that grew up around, you know, older settlements, you know, and the roads kind of reflect that in their curviness and their, you know, and their kind of arbitrarily placed weirdness, you know, of, of smaller, of the kind of European cities. It's like a grid city because it's new. And so it's all blanc blanc and very, very cut and dried and not, not that kind of, uh, old goat trail now it's a road now it's a highway <laughs> now it's a whatever look out um yeah it's it, it's interesting to uh that part of it to me as well but yeah so you go i mean i can't remember all the themed room now i know there was one like movies there was yeah there's the even a, a room where you go in that's a big kind of screening room and yeah and when we went in it was um uh like a not it maybe not a documentary but it looked like a television program yeah where Hergé was there with his friend uh chang yeah chang yeah uh who's one of the characters it, this would have been like 79 or so, around there when when Hergé and chang were reunited yeah it was very it was very sweet mm -hmm. and there was uh do you know who the person was who was speaking? Who His was, name's like Michael Saris. He's a right. he's a French philosopher, right? Who was talking about how you know uh, Hergé was one of the great philosophers of his time. Yeah, yeah, and was laying it on as thick <laughs> as a child who has access to the peanut butter jar and can put as much on the bread as you want. Uh, but yeah, yeah he was, was really. Little, uh, yeah, if I was Hergé, I would have been like you know dying inside oh yeah it was lucky it was in black and white otherwise you could see him blush uh but he was fine so you know he was really uh sopping up the the, the praise it's one of those, it's one of those things where yeah it's just like you are the greatest man who yeah. ever lived yes. you are bringing the world together with yeah. your art and it's like <laughs> yes but it some things c cannot have to be said out loud <laughs> I think when we left, I I said something like, "Put it in your pants, Saris." <laughs> yeah, save a little for the book. <laughs> save a little. I think he wrote a book about Hergé, and I imagine no it's, kidding. I imagine There's no it's, way a guy like yeah. <laughs> that is not like immediately writing a book. But I feel like it would be practically unreadable because it would just be so full of like you know his these very very deep thoughts. You know, probably like influenced by Jacques Derrida or something like that, and it's all it's all very you know about semantics and. You know, in this after a while, you're just like, ugh, I just wanted to read about how good he is. Not, you know, like, I, you just want the fun information. Yeah. And, you know, I don't want, I don't want a bunch of dry stuff about how, you know, Tintin is like, you know, an existential, uh, you know, primer on, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you're just like, ugh. Yeah. And it, it, and it wasn't, it wasn't that. This museum. <laughs> um, again, no, it's, it's it is not. difficult. It is difficult to like go floor by floor and like describe. 
everything because you don't have the the you know we're older gentlemen with bad <laughs> memories. But you know there there was definitely there was the uh, like a, a replica of the uh, the underwater boat, the underwater yes, ship, the, the, the shark submarine. Uh, yeah, there was uh, a, a very nice breakdown of the uh, of the rocket uh, to the moon. Uh, there was some beautiful well, had, art that yeah. was there of like breaking down the interiors, mm-hmm. uh, which I don't know. Was that actually published the uh, the the interiors that they had there on the on the wall? I think yeah, it's in the book. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But they had yeah they had the they had the mock up of the of the capsule like the like a actual model that they use for the artwork. Mm-hmm. You know, and it had little parts that you could open up and see inside different parts of the and they use that for as a reference thing sure. when they when they were drawing the the book. So that's that's uh, that was very exciting to see, and then there was an interesting because we're downstairs suddenly, but that was an interesting thing down there was they had uh, Hergé's record collection, mm-hmm. and it was playing various uh, songs from different albums that were kind of uh, making their way up through you know up through uh, to the, up into the upper parts of the museum, and at first yeah. you're like, Why, who's playing listening to blues music here? This is weird. <laughs> And then finally, you kind of work your way down, and like, yeah, I was listening to like that Pink Floyd playing and stuff. So it was very hit well, yeah. They had, and they had like some some Beatles, out, yeah. You know, was there. Yeah. This was the thing that I that I found interesting, uh, and the only thing. No, it was all interesting. <laughs> uh, but yeah, they had like uh, some some Beatles there because you know he enjoyed the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they were showing some of his influences. Yeah, uh, and one of the influences. Uh, was the Marx Brothers. Mm, yeah, and yeah. Uh, what was the film? Uh, it was the one on the boat. Uh, with the porthole and yes, uh, so yeah. that would be a night of the opera. Was that a night of the opera? Yeah. yeah. And so it was like all these tie-ins to our other podcasts. Yeah, they were linked to, linked to Tintin. Yeah. So you had uh, you know some of his influences were like uh, you know night of the night of the opera. Yeah. Uh, King Kong. Sure. Um, I'm trying to remember some of the other ones. That well, were they there. had Charlie Chaplin. Charlie Chaplin. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And so yeah, that was that was very that was very interesting as well. And then they'd have like some of the art there, and then be playing mm-hmm. movie clips that uh, paralleled in in some yeah. way. Well, Slap oh, Buster Keaton. Yeah, Slapstick has a big part of of Tintin. I mean, Cap- Captain Haddock is a, like a constant uh, victim of slapstick, and but even before Captain Haddock, Tintin would have his slapstick moments, right. you know, or, or Snowy would. You know, there'd be that is the you know, it's the the well drawn. That's tricky to draw, tricky to draw slapstick. I think, and Hergé uh, was so good at that. And so that yeah, it was interesting to see his influences. And they did have some. They did have an exhibit downstairs of various sort of um, like uh, archaeological research and stuff like that right. that he did for like the Broken Ear or for the Seven Crystal Balls and things where he was you know looking at. At actual burial sites, and, and and because as he went on, he got more like as we learned in the show, like post the Blue Lotus, um, research became more and more important to him. One thing that was interesting was thinking about the controversy with Lesoir, where he was like, accused of being a collaborationist, and et cetera, et cetera. It's interesting to to see something like Monsieur Bellum expresses himself freely, where he writes Hitler was a nut, yeah, or Hitler's a nut, and then. Um, to think about uh, King Ottokar's scepter, which is like a complete like analogy of the of like um, Hitler or Hitler's Germany and their you know imperial plans as they you know took over countries in 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 that region, and so it's so weird to think that people thought he was a a collaborationist when there's all this like evidence of 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 his pointing out 
within the pages of a children's book the right. dangers of uh, people you know the dangers of these of these uh of this movement of that time period of the of the fascist movement not just in germany but in italy and and to lesser degree in other other parts of of europe uh including england you know and so um yeah it's interesting to 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 see that uh, and then to think you know of of how much trouble he got in after the war but i mean part of that is jealousy part of that is spite you know that people who were powerless before now have some power and are more than willing to just wave it and shake it around in people's faces so yeah it was a uh, it was fun you know, because you kind of get a... One of the things we did when we did Tintin, uh, Totally Tintin, was context. And it's nice that the museum doesn't skimp on that. And it's willing also... It's this, It's very interesting because it's not shy about displaying pages that, you know, people find controversial now. Like, there were pages of some stuff from Tintin in the Congo. There's stuff from Josette and Jocko using images that I think would not fly in right. modern times. But, you know... It is part of the. It's history. It's part of the history of that the of the book. It's part of the history of the world. Right. You know, we had a right. We had someone right into the show very early on, and they they just said, you know, very clearly uh, that Hergé was racist. And the response to that is, yeah, like everyone else in that time period, that he had he drank from the same the same well as everyone else and had the same thoughts. What's important is that he changed over time, you know, and adjusted his his viewpoint to to reflect changes in, in society you know he wasn't drawing the same images when he was in his 50s as he did when he was in his 20s you know right i think uh again something i keep coming back to is you know a recent kids in the hall uh, interview where they were talking about you know can you say anything nowadays and it's that that dumb question um and uh, and and they all kind of agreed that things are better like just generally they're better now nowadays yeah uh then they've always said the only thing is there's a con a context embargo you know and uh and and i agree with that because if you're just going with twitter and you've only got such a short space to present a thought yeah you can't get a full reflection of a time period yeah, yeah you know and that multiple and like always multiple things are happening simultaneously for sure and if you don't get that if you can't present that then you're not going to get a full picture yeah and you're just going to get the uh the thought that you wanted anyway yeah you know whatever that would would be and you're not wrong about maybe that thought but there's a parallel thought and there's <laughs> another one over here and there's another one here and it's worthwhile seeing because you know otherwise you know, you may think now, well, we've fixed all that now. Sure. And we're fine. It's like, no, no. <laughs> yeah. We're all messed up now, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what's the thing in the future that we're going to be looking back on us now and going like, oof. And if you can't see that, then you're not going to see that yeah. like, later on. Yeah. One, one thing interesting about the museum to me is that it really reflects Hergé's warmth as a person. Mm -hmm. Like, one, one thing, I, I mean, when people say, what do you like about Tintin? When they ask me, because if I, I tell them, that's one of my favorite things. And they're, most people are confused by that because it doesn't, they, it doesn't connect to them the same as it connects to me sometimes. And that's part of it to me is that it's a very warm, loving book, series of books, like the friendship between the characters. Mm -hmm. No one is ever like super evil. Do you know what I mean? Okay. Like they're bad. But they're never like... Tintin doesn't have an arch enemy. It doesn't have an arch enemy. There's no the octopus. And no one is ever like so evil that they can never come back from it. Do you mm. know what I mean? Okay. Like there always is a chance that that person could have a rethink their position and maybe, you know, ask for forgiveness. 
but they're never like have gone so far over the edge that it's just like that you know you can never come back from that place mm-hmm. you know partly because they're children's books but also i think in Hergé's understanding of the world there's room for there's always room for that you know so so let's make Tintin, always... Tintin, yeah Tintin became a little more perfect over time uh he was less so uh, in the beginning because as yeah. you say he was the slapstick character mm-hmm. so to make some of the slapstick slapstick character you have to give them flaws yes, yes. and then the flaws kind of got passed along to haddock and snowy mm-hmm. yeah yeah uh and so you know tintin would be the one going oh snowy <laughs> instead of the one who would be doing the thing that yeah. would then yeah. get him his comeuppance that's for sure i mean and Hergé himself kind of admitted that that was a problem with Hergé's with uh, tintin's character was that he was Maybe too much, too much of a goody goody, too much of a boy scout. Could be, but he was he was Hergé's ideal of a boy scout, right? You know, and that's what he was created as, and that's what he represented. And you can, uh, yeah, there's a couple of different types of character. You know, there's <laughs> there's two types of characters. There's only two. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> how many plots are there? Are there yeah, only two a, plots? How many plots? One. <laughs> oh there's just one plot. There's variations. There's 176 variations on the plot. Okay, but there are. There's only one plot. Um, <laughs> but I was gonna say. Uh, you can have a character that has a lot of uh, depth and uh, different, uh, you know, emotional arcs and whatnot, mm-hmm. or you can have the character that you project yourself onto. Sure. So if you're the reader, you see yourself as Tintin, yeah. And so Tintin is kind of the blank slate, mm-hmm. and then these are your crazy friends that yeah. are around you, and you're going on the adventures. But you can see yourself as you're the brave Tintin, yeah. Who you know should have come down to it. You can punch your way out of a problem if you if you have to. Yeah. And you're smart and figure things out. Well, that's it. And yeah. he doesn't do adult things. He doesn't drink. He doesn't smoke. No, because you know, uh, the child s- is reading this. He doesn't have so sex. He doesn't do things that the kids, child is yeah, Tintin. Yeah. yeah, kids can't do those things. Those are adult activities that kids can't do. And, and so, uh, are we ever really clear as to how old Tintin is? I don't is think he's he ever teenager? said. Yeah, I think he kind of ages a little bit in, in within he's the a world. Boy reporter, right? He's a boy reporter, but I feel like the boyishness kind of ages up a little bit as the series goes right. on. So he's. Never old enough to drive a car, I don't think. I don't oh, think really? Ever... I feel like Tintin drive drives. Okay, I'm going to look that up. You look up, does Tintin drive? Yeah, I'm just going to look like Tintin drives. Because even like when he, like if you think of um, when he's going to Captain's house at the beginning of, of the Castafiori Emeralds, he's riding a... Yep, He's driving a car? Yep. Oh, okay, he's driving in the desert. But is he driving on a street? That's All right, wait a second. Sorry if you don't consider <laughs> desert driving to be... Yep. He's driving in the hills. Is he driving? <laughs> oh my gosh! No, yeah, he's hanging off the, he's side, hanging of off the side of a car there. Okay. Uh, yeah, I guess he does drive. He drives on the moon as well, probably. But uh, yeah, but you know, who's going to pull pull him over on the moon? The moon cops. But quite commonly, it's like Haddock who's driving, or there, enjoy him having a scenic drive through. The there you go. Oh my gosh! Yes, he's driving there. The guy drives more than anyone I've seen in my life. <laughs> I, guess I like I like how everything is like. Oh, well, yeah, you could drive in the desert. Well, yeah, in the mountains. Yeah, well, in the countryside. But but on the road, okay, on the road, like off road. Yes. <laughs> I was clinging to my point. Sure. No, I, but I think that's part of his aging up is yeah. his ability. You know, his driving and and things like that. that I don't know kind how. Of... I don't know what the driving age in Belgium is. It could be sixteen, like it is uh, here. So yeah, yeah. You can still, still be young. Yeah, you can still be young. Yeah. Yet not a man. Not too young to drink. Yes. But his dog is not. No, his dog is always... Well, you know. He's, his dog is on the side. He's only, if he's only three years old, he's old enough to drink. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's... Well, that's... Okay. <laughs> we can get into that in the, another I time. I know. I know. There's some sort it's of sliding... It's not how it doesn't actually work sliding that Sliding scale. All right. So, going back to the museum. 
Yeah. Um, were there any uh, major surprises for you uh, there, aside from the desk? The, the desk, desk was could, a very yeah, the desk surprise. was a very pleasant surprise for me. Was there a big surprise? Well, yeah. I was I was shocked by how much it was made for me. Mm. You know, like I expected it to be more like a kind of a superficial tour through through Hergé and through Tintin. You know, something you'd see at like most museums. Yeah, something that's made for tourists. It has a lot of writing yeah. on the walls, a lot of like reproduced art that's just sort of meaningless. It's yeah. like a giant picture of something or a wooden a wooden cutout thing of a character that you like, and you're kind of like, okay, that's great. Yeah. You know, or a lot of toys. They're just sort of there in place of like art. I wasn't expecting it to be like like a deep dive into. <laughs> Erge, it really and is. It's a creative process. Yeah, it really is. Like, it re- you can, like, not only, like, okay, not only does it have, sure, it has inked pages, but it also has, like, the rough pages, like, Erge's roughing stuff out, getting the characters right, notes stuff on the top in the of the margins. It. Yeah. yeah, drawings in the margins, stuff, drawings of, like, seeing how he, like, draws the full arm, even though it's not going to be in the panel. Yeah, that's Just great. to get the, gets to get where the hand shows right, you know, and stuff like that. That was exciting. It was also exciting to see, how they painted it. It right. never occurred to me in all my live long days <laughs> that they painted the pages at a much smaller size than it was actually published. So they, they shrunk the art down to about the size of like a normal, like regular piece of writing paper you'd, you know, like a, you'd get in a, a half by yeah, yeah. And, and then that was what they, that's what they watercolored. And then those watercolors were enlarged for the, for the publishing for the printing so yeah it was just i never never occurred to me before but it makes sense because it would be so much easier to do that without getting a lot of streaks and stuff from the watercolors right and you're a colorist right now yeah but i I don't color like that i mean that's that's really hardcore like doing like hand coloring and stuff that's really amazing and so yeah it was just everything about it was there for you as as a person who is fascinated by the character fascinated by the art fascinated by erge it's all there, and that's that's what was, that's what was most surprising to me was that, it, like I say, you can dream about going, you know, to a place your whole life, and when you get there, it's you know, it turns out that, you know, it's just fine, it's fine. But no, when you walk in the door, and it's better than fine, it's better than amazing. It just keeps getting it just more blows interesting. Your mind. Yeah, every floor is definitely distinct with its own style, sure, its own feel. Mm-hmm. I mean, you definitely got into, as you say, you know, you saw his record collection, so you got what he was influenced by, yeah. and what he influenced, sure. and that's interesting too. Like he is in the middle of all this, yeah. you know. Yeah, he was not uh, an island that was just this genius who was just alone yeah. creating from nothing mm-hmm. it's like no he saw things he saw films he enjoyed music yeah and uh, it reflected in, in his work yeah like in some ways it's lost to us here in north america because we had a separate comics industry that went its own way that's totally different than what happened in europe because in europe they were really influenced by Hergé. you know that's Hergé pretty much created like franco-belgian comics and probably french comics to a degree as well Kind of, I mean, there are other people too. There's, uh, um, GJ and people like that. I think that's his name. Um, who were like an, an early Spirou guy who's very, you know, a very seminal kind of artist in, in Belgian comics history. But I really do think that Hergé was like the beginning of that and created so much interest in comics that it, it allowed for people like Peyo and Maurice Tiu and Andre Franquin and Roba and, and Morris and 
you know, you name them, all the, all the other Belgian mm-hmm. greats, Will and Walthery and all these ones that kind of came out of that, you know, and just thinking about the, his, his assistants, you know, who all, who all went on, you right. know, um, most of them contributed to, to Tintin magazine. So like Edgar P. Jacobs, who was there at the very beginning, creating Blake and Mortimer or, uh, Jacques Martin, you know, creating Alex, creating, uh, Lafranc, then Roger Leloup, another guy who was very good at technical art, you know, going on to create Yokosuno, which is a very he- kind of heavy science fiction, uh, books. Um, and then of course, Bob Demur, you know, who's kind of like a jack of all trades with an amazing artist could imitate, you know, a lot of people say he was, you know, could imitate Hergé so well and they wish he could have finished, uh, Lelfart. The final now book. We're, we're, Okay, now these people you're talking about, mm-hmm. uh, did they create books that were in the similar format to the Tintins that we know? Yeah. Now that that, that, thing? that is the, that's the other thing. That's that format of like Asterix books or Tintin. Right. They're all like that. They're all published in that format. The 48 page book with the double, the, they would, they would, um, basically have two halves of a, like a page would be two different, uh, boards right so they would draw like one a and one b two a two b and those were put together it seemed it seemed that erge was a bit different he drew in like one whole page but a lot of the if you look at like if you look at asterisk books it's numbered in the in in the margins like on the corners of the of the pages okay of the of the actual like panels and it'll it'll say like one b or you know page three would be three a three b and so then you realize oh so these were done in halves and then they're put together as into the pages interesting. it's interesting but they're all that that format i don't know why that became the standard format but that was when um when uh Hergé was in terms of his reputation and maybe even his his, his livelihood was rescued by uh raymond leblanc the who became the publisher of tintin magazine and kind of became uh Hergé's manager agent and he was the one who who uh kind of initiated the the albums like the books being converted into albums, they were published before that, but in a different format than than the album format. And I think it was um, Le- LeBlanc's decision to create like to limit it to forty eight pages of 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 the story, etc. And so like the earlier ones had to be cut down a bit. So uh, some of the sequences had to be chopped out of them because they were longer. So Tintin magazine published until nineteen ninety three. Yeah, it was around for a long time. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So what, I guess my question with the assistants would they. Would they go on to do short stories and things like Spiru or Tintin magazine first, and then do the uh, the what we consider almost like a graphic novel, you know, the the Tintin, yeah, you know, style well, uh, the, book, or uh, was there was it directly straight to that type of? Well, the way that Spiru book? worked is that you published, say, three pages a week of your of your story, okay, and when you got to forty eight pages, you stopped. And then that that was the end of the book. Okay, so you would always want to have you know a strong ender on the uh, every three pages. Yeah, something should be happening. Yes, that will exactly. Be a grabber yeah. to get you next time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what makes them exciting to read in their album format because they're also locked into a serialized setting, so that there always has to be, uh, yeah, the cliffhanger or something to okay. make make it interesting. And then, yeah, so you would. Publish in Spiru or in Pilote or in or in uh, Tintin magazine, and then you, they then you're if you were lucky if your if your stories were popular enough they would be turned into into actual albums and then you would have the you would have the sales from that as well. But that that was a special thing, like not everyone got that. And Pilote ran until 
uh, 89. Mm, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I'm sorry, we're saying interesting too much. But, you know, there we go. We could whip out the thesaurus and find other words. <laughs> or we could just use the words that, uh, that, that we're, we know. Uh, we're, going with, uh, we're going with here. Now, there, was there ever a, a, a time that, uh, okay, in North America, we went through a dark period where uh, you had Seduction of the Innocent, yeah. uh, you know, the, the, the book about how comics were corrupting youth mm. and then the comics industry self-regulated. N- not necessary, but they did. <laughs> and they had the Comics Code Authority. Yeah. And so, you know, everything got, you know, really pulled back. Was there ever anything like that in Europe or was it... You know, just like a straight line, and they just kept evolving and well, evolving and evolving. I think there was censorship because, um, I mean, even for Hergé, who was incredibly influenced by uh, Father Wallé, the editor of, who's a Catholic priest and right. the editor of, of the Le Vantiem, which yeah, was brought a, him up many times on the show, yeah. Yeah, which was a, you know, pretty right wing newspaper, conservative newspaper that ref- reflected the values of the Catholic Church, etc. And I think. There was a, for a long time, you can see like, you can particularly see like in, in, in Spiru, like if you look at like any sort of, uh, histories of it, you'll see like their Easter specials and their Christmas specials were very, very big, very elaborate drawings, you know, that kind of celebrate Christmas, celebrate Easter and things. So those were obviously big, important holidays in, in that area. So I think there was like a kind of a self-censorship. Yeah. That, that reflected the values of the people who lived in, lived that time period. And there wasn't really, there wasn't really like a, I don't want to call it crass commercialism, but EC Comics was a little crass in its, in a way that, you know, in a way with it, like horror books and stuff like that, sure. you know, that were very violent, very bloody, you know, very, uh, dry, very dark humor, you know. And I don't think that was really part of like what they were doing in, in Belgian, in, in the Franco Belgian comics, you know, which tended towards a lighter tone, which is maybe why I, I, I like them so much, because that appeals to me. Right. You know, I like the styles, but also love the, I just like the stories because they're very innocent and very, you know. Yeah, it's almost, fine. it's just interesting to me seeing where European comics went, mm-hmm. where Japanese comics went, where yeah. North American comics went, and and the reasons for for that. Yeah, it was the 70s is where uh, French comics kind of, or Belgian, Belgian, Franco-Belgian comics kind of went off into their own like kind of place, you know. Okay. And, so, you know, people that for a long time, like, like Andre Franquin would be an example of that. Someone who, you know, drew Gaston Lagaffe, drew uh, Spiro and Fantasio, and then starts doing more adult stuff in the 70s where he's doing, uh, I can't remember the name of that, uh, Bet Noir. There was kind of a name for, for a strip that he started doing that was much darker in tone than what he'd been doing previously. And I think, you know, you just kind of reach a point where you feel kind of closed in by, by, the, by the, you know, the very narrow... Right very narrow uh, range of what you're allowed to, to show in, in Spiru and Pulo. Because those books really were for kids, you know. And so, and they were regarded that way by, but um, yeah, like Mobius, well, obviously he was Jean Giraud who drew Lieutenant Blueberry for a long time, which was a Western strip that ran, yeah. I think it ran in, in Pilot. And that was his bread and butter for a long time. You know, this very generic western strip it's fine but it's not it's not crazy it's not great like the inkle and stuff that he was doing with jodorowsky when he was drawing as mobius you know his alter ego his more adult alter ego so yeah you see that more in the 70s i think so yeah it's interesting yeah there wasn't yeah there was nothing i don't think there was anything like ec comics in uh for better or worse in uh in franco-belgian history yeah that was one thing uh, that definitely was not in the Hergé museum 
was uh, anything of like what else was going on in the world of comics. Yeah, it's yeah. very self-contained as far as sure. That's, yeah, yeah. As far as that's concerned, did they did they have anything in there um, uh, with the Spielberg movie? I'm trying to remember. No. Yeah, I didn't think so, no. which is an odd, which was odd to me. Oh, because, really? Well, yeah, because it was like sort of the you know it's part of the history. They had okay. a little bit of the Nelvana cartoon was mm. there. They showed a little bit of that, yeah. which was kind of a fun display they actually had there, and then connected it to the you know the comic uh, related scene. Yeah, um, but the Nelvana was much truer to the Erge style and yes. the stories, whereas. We kind of had this discussion with a few different people. This was one of their favorite questions to ask me anyway, yeah. was, um, what do you think of the Tintin movie? What do you think of Spielberg's Tintin movie? Right. To which my answer was, I think it's a good movie, but I don't think it's Tintin. Like, it's too big to be a Tintin story. Like, it's, there's too, the setting, the set pieces and stuff like that are way more elaborate than you would ever find in a Tintin story, mm-hmm. which are more based in character than they are in, in catastrophe yeah the pacing seems different yeah. and uh, many other things mm-hmm. no i just found that uh that, that odd because it was the most recent kind of resurgence of tint yeah and yeah people and discussion of tint mm. and yet it, you know as far as i could remember i didn't yeah i don't recall seeing it no in, i don't remember in, anything in either at all but then i didn't miss it because no that's all right <laughs> nor nor uh nor should you okay uh is there anything else in the museum that you wanted to talk about no i think we've uh cover just about everything that i would except show up uh for lunch if you want to get uh lunch there yes because if you show up when we did uh they, they might make you a waffle but you're going to feel guilty about it so uh so, so yeah you'll that. just drink a, a couple of cokes and then you'll go home yeah there was a very tasteful uh gift shop that was not uh you know it wasn't uh yeah it wasn't pushing. thrilling yeah it wasn't really pushing stuff on you it was no this isn't what it's about yeah yeah it was that relaxed dignified european Hey, what was nice about the gift shop, though, was a, a great selection of, the, of his books. Although I couldn't find that one. I was looking for that one, Josette and Jocko. But um, I did find it, but not there. Right. Um, but it was nice because there was like a range of prices. You know, yeah, you could pay a, a $1,500 or 1500 euros for a rocket. Sure could. If you want, or $1,000 for a large Tintin statue. Or you could pay 11 euros for some coasters like I did. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's a perfectly reasonable price and it's fun and you can bring it home and make people put their drinks on them and yeah so so i, I thought that was very good that you had like a range of prices there was they also had watches there too they had mm-hmm. these watches which um if i'd been more prepared i, I might have uh, bought a watch but i wasn't wasn't there i wasn't psychically there for that so no. you know that kind of expense <laughs> but i definitely came out of uh, the experience uh inspired mm-hmm. uh and I was also inspired by how you could present a museum about comics. Yeah. Like, just that just that alone, because you, again, you went to... I went to the uh, Cartoon, Cartoon, Cartoon Museum. Museum. Yeah. Did you find that an inspiring museum, comics-wise? No. Did, did it make you want to explore... Well, you're, you know most of the comics that were in there. As in, yeah. like, there wasn't too much that was new to you. No, I, there was a... I mean, they had a guy there called Hank Sten, who I'd never heard of. And uh, who's apparently was like an incredibly prolific artist who, in like at its height in the '60s, was drawing six different strips. Okay, which is just crazy. But you know, uh, but that, so that was interesting there. But I missed, I missed by a month the Edgar P. Jacobs exhibit, and that's a little who who's galling. that? That's Blake and Mortimer. He was okay. a he was an Hergé assistant, and so that was a little galling that I didn't get to see that. So that made me unhappy. But the problem with 
the problem with the cartoon museum, and it's not their fault. It's just the re- it's just the reality of of commerce and of trademark and copyright and all this kind of garbage is that it doesn't have enough original art in it. You know, like I did see, I saw a Mashereau, Raymond Mashereau drawing. I did see uh, Mezier, who did Valerian, uh, who was the artist for Valerian. I did see like a Valerian page. And that made me very happy because I'm a big fan of Valerian. And and uh, uh, yeah, Mashereau with chlorophyll. That, that made me happy as well because I'm a fan of those books. <laughs> but there was like no T.U. in there. No Morris T.U., no Jules Jordan, which is like a major seminal uh, comic. There was no Walthery. Okay. There was no... Um, there's like, and there's no like, no representations of any of like kind of the classic, you know, no Gigi, no, no, um, uh, Jacques Martin, no Roger Le Loup. So none of those people got any kind of, any kind of representation. Peyo, uh, like they had a big kind of Smurfs exhibit, mm-hmm. like a bunch of like toy Smurfs and a Smurf village and stuff, but no art. Right. And no art for Brenoir Brissifay, hmm. no art for, for his, you know, his main work and the one that he loves so much, which wasn't the Smurfs, was Johann and Pierre-Louis. No pages from that. So that was kind of disappointing. Like, you know, like if you're going to do a cartoon museum and celebrate like Franco-Belgian comics, you need to have all those people represented right. because they are all like major artists who like created like the history, like were there at the beginning and created the history of, of, of you know, uh, European comics. And so like going there and it was fine like i enjoyed seeing some of the original art that was there but going there and then going to the Hergé museum it's just so such night and day and i understand that there i understand the problems the logistical problems but i'm just saying like you got to get your you got to get it together yeah you get it together cuz smarten up yeah it's just Fly a, right yeah it's an amazing uh it's it could be an amazing museum but it's not it's not there yet okay it's so. a good good book good book uh uh, store there though for for graphic novels like an amazingly good bookstore but yeah okay so uh Hergé museum uh groundbreaking and uh kind of defines what something like this could be for sure. uh, exceeded your expectations by a, yeah by a long shot and uh and so we'll end on that positive note on that <laughs> side, of, side of things yeah so that was our exploration uh there now we're going to say that this was our last episode of totally tintin unless hey madrid <laughs> Do you want to fly us over there and have us look at the Hergé exhibit you got over there? Yeah. If so, maybe we'll do uh, one more. We might do one more. And if and if not, um, uh, then uh, you can still listen to us on our other podcasts. We do Sneaky Dragon once a, once a week. Yeah, uh, That is our catch-up on what we've been up to for the weekend. Oh, so many tangents. <laughs> Dave has uh, started uh, recently um uh recapping uh dark shadows and uh we also um do a little uh thing every other week uh, where dave uh, picks some music uh with a theme and we uh we discuss uh, that as well uh sort of a reflection of a podcast dave did previously uh called sinky dragon listening party with yeah. uh with uh mary dedrick my, my daughter that is correct he that that story checks out <laughs> uh if you want to listen to any of our other podcasts we have of course all episodes of Totally Tintin are available at SneakyDragon.com uh, or where you get your uh, podcasts. We also did a podcast about Marx Brothers called uh, Full Marks. We did one about uh, the Beatles, Completely Beatles. Uh, we did uh, one called uh, Fansplainers where we just went over a variety of movies. And uh, I'm sure there's one more that I'm missing out on that uh, that we did. You said the Marx Brothers one, right? I said Marx Brothers, Tintin, Tintin 
Beatles. Beatles. Is that it? Peaky Dragon. Yes, and now you're doing Horse Mysteries. Horse Mysteries. Which is mystery, uh, a podcast you're doing with your wife. Dave works with his relatives a lot. <laughs> a lot of nepotism it's on cheaper. this uh, network. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, it's actual real-life mysteries involving horses. So if you like horses, if you like mysteries, if you like crime, if you like crime with horses, yeah. boom, there you Horse go. Mysteries. Go to SinkyDragon.com. And uh, we'd love to hear your comments. And uh, we have a space underneath uh, our, uh, you know, uh, these episodes uh, on SneakyDragon.com. And you can uh, write us there. Or write us at SneakyD at SneakyDragon.com. Other options are, go on Twitter. Uh, If Twitter still exists when you're around, it's on the edge right now. I don't know. I I may be losing my blue check mark. And if I do, I'm out of here. Sneaky underscore dragon um, on Twitter. And we're also on Tumblr, uh, sneakydragon.tumblr.com. That's where we are at. So thank you so much for uh, listening to us one more time. I know we said it was the end last time. (laughs) This might be the end. Spinning question mark. Yes, let's do a spinning question mark. And can I just finish by saying that if you live in Europe, if you live anywhere in Europe, and you love Tintin, you have to go to the Hergé Museum. Yes. Like, don't just say to yourself, one of these days I'm going to do that. Get together with some friends. Go there. It's so worth it. It is an amazing place for Hergé fans and Tintin fans. So yeah. if you live in North America and thinking about going to Europe, make sure you put it as part of your trip. It's so worth going there if you love those books. So yeah. um, that's all I'm going to say about it. Good. Oh, one more thing. Uh, if you want to see the book that I was talking about, that David and I do with Nina Matsumoto. Uh, SparksComic.com will give you all the information on that. There's three Sparks books. Sparks, Spark Double, Sparks Double Dog Dare, and Sparks Future Perfect. All are uh, best-selling books. Uh, so, uh, yeah. you know, check those out if you are so inclined. And if you're so inclined, yeah. why not, and you're in Europe or anywhere else in the world, invite us to your con. We'll come there. And uh, we're very pleasant. Uh, the That's last true. con we went to, the Fax Con, was very pleasant. That's why we were over there in Belgium. And they uh, said about David, uh, he's a good guy. <laughs> so there you are. I got a free meal out of it. You did? You got oh, a delicious meal. Oh, European meal. So nice. <laughs> well done, uh, Europe. Uh, we love you. And uh, thank you so much for listening. I've been Ian Boothby. I've been David. And this has been, surprisingly enough, another episode of Totally Dintin. Shocker. Bye. Bye.